Well, let's as we as we do before we get started, take a little look at at where it, in in the comic book world, in, in the, the publication history mm. um, of Marvel Comics, Blade kind of comes about. And to do that, we need to take a little look into the history of of horror comics because that's really where this starts. When you're talking vampires, you're talking horror comics. Yeah. Yep. Um, in previous episodes, we did discuss how. The superhero comic died in popularity after the Second World War. Yeah, they they burned brightly from the end of the thirties through to forty five, and then they absolutely died a death. Um, and in this vacuum, we saw, especially with Marvel, cowboy comics and romance comics come <laughs> to the forefront. Mm. But but nothing flourished in 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 those times quite like horror comics did. Um, there's a publisher that's not Marvel or DC called EC Comics, and they were they owned horror comics. They were the guys that they, they published comic books like Tales from the Crypt. That's ah. where Tales from the Crypt comes from. Yep, it yep. comes from EC Comics, and they featured gore, bloodshed, crime, and proper horror stories. Mm. Um, there are famous EC comic covers depicting men buried alive. Ooh. Pleading for their lives and banging on a on a coffin. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, actually, if I may interrupt quickly, I think I have a big bumper book of horror comics somewhere that my stepdad got me, and it was just a collection from from like the uh, from the I think from the fifties all the way to today, from all these different uh, an anthology of horror comics. And my God, they they was there was some really strong stuff even back then. That's the kind of impact that that these covers made on the world. You yeah. know, there's one famously a, a woman's decapitated head being carried by an axe murderer. Oof. Right now, admittedly, you can't see below the neck mm. of this woman because of where the comic cuts off. Yeah, but you can see a, her slumped body in the corner. Again, shadow covers the top bit. <laughs> <laughs> but she's being, he- as a hand, holding her by the hair. Yeah. Her eyes have rolled up in her head. And the on the other hand, the guy's carrying a bloody axe. That's on the newsstand. Wow. In the comic book newsstand next to Batman, Superman. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and there was a big public outcry all over America about, about this trend of horror comics. It's kind of led by... Um, a guy called uh, Frederick Wortham, who was a psychiatrist, and he wrote this book called The Seduction of the Innocent, which we briefly mentioned in the Captain America episode. The, the book is all about how dangerous comic books were. Mm. It, it alleges that Batman and Robin are kind of gay lovers, <laughs> and there's a pederast angle on it. It, it, wow. it talks about the same with Captain America and Bucky, mm-hmm. that the depictions of young boys doing doing these kind of things and being this close to older men is not cool and hey you know what he's right <laughs> it's pretty weird it is. um but it, it really banged the drum that these crime crime was another crime comics were really big as well it banged the drum that these comic books were, were dangerous and this was this was a big deal mm. um crime and horror comics were banned in cities across america texas uh houston and texas banned it Oklahoma City banned horror and crime comics and others as well. There were public burnings Ooh. in the fifties. Less than less than ten years removed from um, those 
public burnings we saw the Nazis do of, of books. Oh, there God. are public burnings in the same way they had for the remember the Beatle, Beatlemania. There was the backlash against Beatlemania, yeah. especially when they compared themselves to Jesus or didn't. But there you go. There were public burnings of Beatles records. There were burnings of of comic books across America. In fifty four, in April of nineteen fifty four. There was a Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency. They held hearings in the same way they did for the mob. There's a Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquencies investigating comic books. It disrupts the whole industry. And, and they, they, what they do is they come up with um, uh, the Comic Book Code Authority, yeah. which is a regulatory body to try and clean up comic books. And it bans outright and completely depictions of werewolves, ghouls, <laughs> Zombies and vampires. Horror comics are dead and buried. Um, EC goes out of business, and you do not see a vampire in a comic book from 1954 through to 1972 ish, 71, 72. Yeah. They started to relax the code. Hammer horror movies became big. Yeah, yeah, there we go. And suddenly, vampires and Frankenstein and werewolves are kind of popular. So the Comic Book Code Authority kind of says, oh, well, we'll relax the rules and you, you can depict vampires if it's in, in the classic sense. The classic um, sense. So, yeah, as in if it's like Bram Stoker's Dracula, then we it's in a movie, we're kind of okay with it. Um, so at the same time as those movies are coming out and the rules are being relaxed, Marvel Comics seems sees a chance to make a quick book. Because <laughs> uh, um, you know, the, 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 if the comic book code authority is allowing it, and Bram Stoker's characters are public domain, i.e., free for anyone to use, why not? Why not make a Dracula comic? So, so they do. Um, Marvel uh, creates Tomb of Dracula in, in the nineteen seventies. It resurrects Dracula in in the seventies in the Marvel universe. Really, really popular. What the most popular horror book I think of all time. Um, it, it it ran for for the whole decade of the seventies, mm. um, and and very quickly a very talented writer called Marv Wolfman, and that's genuinely his surname. <laughs> his surname is, and it's not spelt differently. Marv Wolfman. I am um, Wolfman. He, he he gets hired to do the comic and. Um, Wolfman's a hugely influential writer. He created the modern version of the Teen Titans. Yes. He created Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, all those era titans. That's him. He wrote um, Crisis on Infinite Earths for DC Comics, which hugely influential. They've just made a TV show about it this year with all their TV you know, projects. Um, and at Marvel Comics, he also created Bullseye and Daredevil and the Black Cat and Spider-Man and Nova, one of the cosmic characters. Early on in his career in the 70s, he takes over Tomb of Dracula, and in issue 10, he introduces a jive-talking black vampire slayer um, who joins the cast of Tomb of Dracula as these gang of, of vampire hunters chase Dracula across Europe, trying to kill him. So that's, that's how we go from sedu- seduction of the innocent and creating juvenile delinquents <laughs> to... Um, like nearly twenty years with no vampires anywhere in comic books. To what if Shaft was a vampire slayer? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
Let's go behind the page now to understand how we got to this insane place <laughs> where fans online bully a movie, <laughs> the movie company put it back in the cinema, and 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 it bombs for a second time. Let's take a look at the the the, the history of, of 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 horror comics. Um, cool, because that's really <clears throat> where this where this starts. Um, we've talked before about how. The, the superhero comic as a concept kind of died in popularity after the the Second World War. Yeah. Aside from like Superman and, and, and Batman um, and, and and a couple of others that really it, it, after the after the Second World War forty five superhero comics just weren't popular anymore. Mm. And in this in this vacuum, we saw a rise of the other comics, the competitors that were still there during the war. Cowboy comics, um, romance comics, which were always popular, um, but nothing flourished in the kind of late forties and the fifties like horror comics. Yeah, um, EC Comics was a, a publisher that published um, massively famous books like Tales from the Crypt, um, which would feature gore, bloodshed, and truly horrifying stories. I think there I have are... a future collection of some of these old comics as well somewhere. Mm. Big big volume of all the and you do get these early ones where it's like bloody hell there was a lot of violence in here there are very famous covers depicting yeah. um, men being buried alive yeah. screaming for their life um a, a woman's decapitated head being carried by an axe murderer so mm. the axe murderer is holding her hair mm. as the head dangles from the hair yes her eyes rolled up in there it's gruesome and these are on newsstands all over america right next to mickey mouse and <laughs> superman comics um that there was no regulation of this industry um and that led to a, a, a big public outcry um over over comics not just horror comics but they were certainly the the, the biggest thing that that detractors could point at and mm. say it's a dirty industry it's a dirty business right and this public outcry uh, be- became led by a psychiatrist called um frederick uh, wortham who wrote a book called the seduction of the innocent which is about how dangerous and dirty and corrupting comic books were he, uh, wortham said that all comic books were corrupting the youth of america he leveled allegations that like Batman and Robin was um, a secret gay coding (laughs) and Captain America and Bucky were secret gay lovers and that's what these books were promoting. Um, They were promoting homosexuality and in some ways pedophilia as well and violence. But but the the big baton that he he used to bash comics with with, was... Um, were horror comics that now this happens to like this happens to rock and roll around the same time. Yeah. Elvis was a, was satanic hips that were corrupting the youth of America. Like TV gets it as well, and all that kind of stuff. Like I was about it to comes say around that, uh, calling his hips satanic and corrupting youth of America is somehow a compliment. Mm. <laughs> but horror comics were the big deal, were the big thing that could be pointed at in this in this. In this situation, Christian mm. groups um, objected on religious grounds to mm. the the depictions of the supernatural stories, and they were targeted as being satanic. Uh, and that's a very big deal. That would be a very big deal, probably anywhere in the in the forties and fifties, especially in America, which you know we always have to remember when we're in the UK and Europe that America's relationship to um, religion. 
uh, is is uh, somehow more vehement and stronger uh, when it comes to censorship and things than it is, I think, in 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 Europe, post the war anyway, post the Nazi yeah. buying. This was like a big deal. Like there were public burnings of comic books in cities all across America. Oh boy! Um, Oklahoma City and Houston, Texas, banned the sale of crime and horror comics. Outlawed EC comics. Um, you couldn't get a, a comic book about an FBI agent or a ghost or a vampire. Vampire comics banned. Um, and then in 1954. Uh, the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency was 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 put together, and they held hearings, Senate Subcommittee hearings, investigating comic books. Um, and not all of this is unwarranted. Mm. Now, the outrage and the moral panic is is a bit crazy to look back at from this era, but I don't think. <laughs> Depictions of decapitations and stuff should probably be next to Mickey Mouse comics, and should there shouldn't there was no age limit on a kid buying yeah. a gruesome story like that. Um, it's not necessarily for me to say, but I'm I think we have as a as a sophisticated society we've realised there should be age limits on other types of media, and there weren't on comic books. Um, the 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 end result of this was the the comic book industry creating a self-regulatory body. They were essentially told um, by the American government, by the, the, the result of the Senate subcommittee hearings, were you regulate yourselves or we will regulate you. Mm. And no industry... I mean, America, America in general is not keen on, on big government getting involved in regulating <laughs> business. So that's not something that they want to do unless it suits them. And no industry wants to have regulation imposed on them by an outside agency, by a government. So the, the, the comic book industry came together and they all had to pay to create something that was palpable to the the American people and to the American government, and that was the Comic Code Authority, um, a regulatory body that was there to basically clean up the image of comic books as an industry and 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 kind of ensure that people were happy for their kids to go to a newsstand and buy them. And this authority uh, bans the depiction of vampires outright: werewolves, ghouls, zombies, ghosts. And vampires are banned from comic books. Supernatural comics and characters are dead and buried. Horror comics are dead as of 1954. Mm. And it took 17 years for these rules to be relaxed with supernatural characters and stories. We get into the 60s and we see um, a huge rise in, in the number of supernatural characters in the public eye. In like the mainstream, like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Werewolf—they're big business in the cinema, thanks to the smash hit Hammer horror movies. Mm. But those are still not things you kids—you want your kids to go and see. You don't want to see Christopher Lee and Bella and all that kind of stuff. There's <laughs> a lot of you know blood and partial nudity and things like that. But at the same time, in the '60s, you've got gentle mainstream primetime TV shows like The Monsters, The Adam Family. And bewitched, all of which are presenting presentations of witches and ghouls and ghosts and zombies and vampires. But in a, they're kind of proving that these supernatural characters can be portrayed in stories for for entertainment purposes and not be gruesome, not be satanic, and not turn kids into killers who are obsessed with the devil. Um, <laughs> and that's a massive help to the to, to the to the comic book cause in this in yeah. this aspect. 
So in February of, of, of 71, the Comic Book Code Authority, the Comic Code Authority, sorry, updates their, their rules and their, and their guidelines, and they lift the ban on vampires and other supernatural characters. Mm. And this, of course, immediately pricks up the ears of Mr. Stan Lee, who <laughs> sees a way to turn a quick book, um, get some popular characters in, you know, popular characters that you can see they're popular from the movies, you can see that these things are popular from TV, let's get them into Marvel. He wants to immediately bring some of these supernatural characters to life in the Marvel Universe. The company were, according to Roy Thomas, who was uh, Stanley's right-hand man, they were making plans to use Dracula, as they would eventually do. The Tomb of Dracula um, was a massive, massive comic for Marvel in the 70s. But they wanted to test the waters first, to ease into this, okay. to see if the Comic Code Authority and the comic-buying public really were ready for some horror-themed stories and characters in the wake of the book burnings of the 50s and the, <laughs> the moral panic. So Stan Lee didn't want a true vampire to be introduced. Marvel were going to... They were still gun-shy about how religious groups would react to the undead in yeah. comic books. And so Morbius was Marvel testing the waters. That makes a so vampire, much sense. A vampire that wasn't a vampire. Yeah. Marvel were very, very explicit that there was nothing supernatural, nothing undead or satanic about this Morbius character. This was another science fiction character, just like Spider-Man, and would in fact debut in Spider-Man. Every time Morbius appeared on the front cover, he's always called the living vampire because the undead was a very bad um, term that was used on them and, and had lots of negative connotations. To get ahead of all this satanic criticism, the living vampire is used again and again. I had the feeling that a lawyer got involved to help them with that. <laughs> it may, maybe, yeah, or, or maybe Stanley's a very savvy dude. Yeah, I, yeah, um, it just does sound. It does sound like a very loophole decision. Morbius was created by um, Roy Thomas and artist Gil Kane mm. in an issue of, of, of Amazing Spider-Man. It is, in fact, the very first issue of Amazing Spider-Man to not be written by Stan Lee. No The very way. first issue to be written by somebody other than Stan Lee. It's written by Roy Thomas. And if I might say, it's dated because it's the, it's the 70s. Roy Thomas writes the hell out of... Peter Parker's dialogue in that it's hard to explain but it is full of little um quips jokes um yelling at himself references he really goes for it with that mm. um and so yeah they they, they, they Thomas and Kane created the character as a, a man given pseudo vampire powers rather than this scientifically rather than supernaturally mm. Gil Kane, the, the, the artist, based the the face and the, 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 the character's look of Morbius on an actor called Jack Palance. Now, Jack Palance is probably... You might know him. Um, he's from one of the greatest Western movies of all time, Shane. And he's also um, Curly in City Slickers. Won the Oscar for that at the end of his career, towards mm. the end of his life, in fact. Um, Jack Palance had never played a vampire before. 
But then two years after Morbius was created, Jack Palance played Dracula in an influential TV movie called Bram Stoker's Dracula, which oh. I was thought was a neat bit of. He wouldn't. I doubt. I doubt he ever knew he was the inspiration for the for the design of Morbius. But then he goes on to play a full a full vampire. I think just two years later. I've only seen Jack Palance in a few things, and he's always got that evil, sinister sheen to him, doesn't he? Um. Not in City Slickers. Not, not in City Slickers. Okay, I'm thinking more of like in Batman his two and Osc- that. His two big Oscar movies, no. no. <laughs> okay. A sidebar on this TV movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, that has nothing to do with Morbius, but bear mm. with me. Okay. This is the movie... This TV movie is the very first time that a fictional story comes up with the idea of making Dracula and the real-life Vlad the Impaler the same person. Oh, Good. And it's just a TV movie, and it was. It's written and directed by uh, I forget his name now, but it's the creator of Dark Shadows, that mm. vampire soap opera that's terrible and people love. Um, and it heavily, heavily influences the Francis Ford Coppola Keanu Reeves Dracula movie. Um, What's your opinion on that Dracula movie? I enjoy it despite things. Yeah, same. <laughs> it's camp as hell, but I love it. Yeah. So this uh, once this TV movie came out and introduced this idea, Coppola ran with that. Coppola called his movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, just like the TV movie is called. Um, this was the first movie uh, to depict um, Dracula as having this twisted, tortured um, love affair and pining for this woman over all these centuries, and now she's resurrected in a new form. That's all there in this TV movie with Jack Palance, and Coppola takes all of that for his movie. <laughs> anyway... Sidebar over. Um, <laughs> after so, Morbius is just he's he's a he's a, a villain of the month um, in the Spider-Man comics. And after several of those appearances, he 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 goes on to star in something called Vampire Tales, which is one of Marvel's black and white horror magazines. Ah, yes, you've mentioned the, these. Yeah, the black and white magazines, uh, they're published by something called Curtis Magazines, which is just mm. an, a, a subdivision of Marvel. Um, uh, so it's a, a magazine and not a comic book, which means it doesn't fall under the purview of the Comic Code Authority. Mm. That allows the, the titles to feature stronger content, um, profanity, partial nudity, graphic violence... That's where Howard the Duck gets his first kind of uh, start as an as an, an an insane zany character. Moon Knight as well gets um, gets his start in the black and white magazine trades, um, and they published that like between seventy three and seventy five. And uh, I think Morbius is in pretty much every every single uh, vampire tales with his own black and white um, comic book, which can have blood in it. It can have him biting people's throats. It can have mm. some of that going on in there. And after his first um, his first kind of vampire tale stories, Morbius becomes the star of his own um, bi monthly Marvel comic twice twice every two months, not every month, called it Adventure into Fear. Ooh. Um, and it it's where Man Thing um, and How the Duck got their start as well. Um, but it has a very long title when Morbius is in it because it becomes Adventure Interfere with Morbius the Living Vampire. That's the full title of the comic. <laughs> um, and he has some wacky adventures in uh, in Adventure Interfere written by How the Duck creator Steve Gerber. Um, so he's in this adult 
black and white horror magazine, Vampire Tales, and he's also <laughs> in Adventure into Fear, doing some wacky trans-dimensional stuff at the same time. Uh, but 1975, both Vampire Tales and Adventure into Fear are both cancelled. Hmm. And 75 marks the end of Morbius being a leading Marvel character for about 17-odd years, a very long time. Hmm. He, he has sporadic appearances throughout the, the, the rest of those decades, but Morbius is revived in the 90s, all thanks to Ghost Rider. Ah, um, yes, that would be a good connection. So the 1980s had seen a rise in popularity again of, of horror and the supernatural. We think of like Stephen King and Dean Koontz being mega stars in the 80s and the 90s. Um, 80s cinema was packed with everything from Hellraiser to The Lost Boys to Ghost Rider. You know, family, um, pure horror and then supernatural horror themes and characters being used as more action adventure rather than horror horror hmm. um and and as we discussed before this has led to a a huge resurgence and uh, well the launch of a brand new ghost rider character danny ketch and this ghost rider is much more tied to the the more modern urban supernatural hellraiser stephen king horror than than um that was very popular at the time yeah Ghost Rider becomes one of Marvel's top, most popular characters alongside Wolverine and, and, and Punisher. He is spun off into cartoons and, and video games and toys. Mm. And on the back of Ghost Rider's popularity, Marvel decide to launch a whole new line, like half a dozen new supernatural horror-themed comic books. They're all going to be in the same like division. Um, they would all cross over and have their own adventures together and stuff. And this special little section of the Marvel Universe, this imprint, was called the Midnight Suns. Ah. The big R from Will there. You're well, thinking of a video game, aren't you? Yeah, because it's now available for pre-purchase uh, the other day. It's announced, but I'm not bothering that till October when it comes out. But I'm looking forward to that game. That game's spelt differently for some reason. It's spelt Midnight Suns. S-U-N um, I, but I, I don't mind uh, So Marvel put all their supernatural Characters together Under this same banner This same imprint mm. So you had all these separate comic books With all these separate supernatural horror themed Characters doing their adventures But all driving towards the same story And then every now and then they would The characters would come together Form a team called the Midnight Suns and have a big crossover event, just mm. like the MCU. So, Ghost Rider and Johnny Blaze are in it. The two, the two Ghost Riders, essentially, along with Doctor Strange, um, some characters from uh, the Tomb of Dracula, including Blade, and and Morbius is there as well as a as a big part of that. And Morbius gets this big, big resurgence um, and this complete re retooling. Um, Nineteen ninety two, we get the the, the second. Um, Morbius series is launched returning Morbius to his status as like a main character but he's completely mm. retooled with a stronger connection to supernatural and horror um, he actually becomes a supernatural character for the first time he gets fitted out with this very 90s all leather goth inspired outfit with straps <laughs> and buckles on it um, he, he becomes he stops being a villain and becomes a 
a hero for the first time. Mm. It's kind of discovered that he he had this insanity for for every other time we've seen him, which drove him to be a monster, to be a to be a villain. And now he's he's lost that, and he's he's um, kind of being himself for the first time. And he receives a brand new set of powers, and he and he sets out to kind of stalk the streets of New York as a. Uh, an urban vigilante anti-hero that drinks the blood of bad guys and killers and stuff. And this series would only last uh, three or four years, which is a pretty good period of time, really, in comic books. And it leaves an indelible mark on on comic book fans. Morbius is still fondly thought of from this era, um, where he is this kind of yeah modern horror character with a with a with a supernatural bent rather than just a scientific mm. thing sci-fi thing he becomes way more of a monster of the month for spider to beat up he becomes a much more fleshed out sophisticated modern marvel anti-hero well before we leap into the the movie itself and press play it's worth taking a look at, at the history of this character, who, Will, is really unique for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, uh, he's a jigsaw character, which we'll get to. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> sat down on day one and went, I have fully conceived this character wholly and originally. That didn't happen. Okay. He's also, I mean, he, he's not created by Stan Lee. Ooh. Let's just have a quick think about the movies. We've the only other non-Stanley character who's fronted a movie that we've looked at on our journey has been Blade. So ah, that's yes, another yes, little yes. similarity there. And they're, of course, they're both supernatural characters as well, and they do have a history which I don't think we'll have time to cover in this one. But yes, this is a a not not a Stanley creation. Which which makes it a standout in you know in in the ones we we look at. Oh, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy mm. wasn't a Stanley creation. That's another one. Okay. Um, you know what? You crank out seventeen, eighteen of these, you start to forget where you've been. <laughs> <laughs> he's also he's also not a New York Manhattan based um, hero character, which is what we get. All the Marvel classics in the sixties mm. were all Manhattan based. You know the Avenge, every member of the Avengers, and then them all as a team. And yes, Thor goes to Asgard, but generally to begin with, he's Doctor Donald Blake, <laughs> yeah. Manhattan, Man- Man- Manhattan Doctor. Um, and this is one who, instead of instead of uh, you know, you could always say, haven't you got any characters that aren't based in New York? And Stan would say, yes, he's based in the mystical city of Asgard. That's not <laughs> what we meant, Stan. <laughs> Is there any other city in in America you can base a character? And and Dada, uh, Ghost Rider is very much that kind of character. He is not. He's West Coast. Yeah. He he's darts around. I think. The, the the mid south and then he's all west coast a hell of a lot in in california um his creation was under dispute for several years and wh- whilst that's weird it does mean that thankfully uh there's some court testimony which has really <laughs> really put together a, a bit of a fleshed out full picture of of um of ghost rider uh 1972 writer Gary Friedrich was working on Daredevil 
and he pitched the idea of a supernatural evil Knievel mm. called Ghost Rider to become one of Daredevil's villains. Um, he he was working on an already established Daredevil supervillain called Stuntmaster, who is a stunt riding <laughs> motorcycle villain. And he thought he he basically sort of sat Roy Thomas down, uh, who was the editor of Daredevil at the time, and said, "This is terrible, but what if we set his head on fire, and he was uh, <laughs> called Ghost Rider, and this is what he this is what he'd be." Um, Friedrich had been inspired by motorcycle movies like The Wild One and Easy Rider as mm. well, and had spent time in in California where the motorcycle scene was really vibrant in, in the late 60s and the early 70s. Um, and he he kind of took that and ended up as kind of a a hippie in, in, in the village in, in New York writing all these comic books. And in 1971, he created a black-and-white horror comic for a small publisher. That was called Hell Rider. And it ah. was about a disenfranchised... Vietnam War veteran with uh, terrifying powers who could, who rode a motorcycle and shot flames from the motorcycle to burn alive the bad guys, which is kind of you know the horror comics were very much about murdering and dismembering <laughs> you know gang members and stuff. Exactly. Um, Seventy one is also the same year that Evil Can Evil is kind of probably at the height of his popularity. The mm. biopic. The, well, is it a biopic because he made it? The movie about him that he pretty much made came out um, and he sets world records for jumping the most amount of cars ever and he sells out football stadiums. Mm. Like like proper tens of thousands of seat football arenas, um, stadiums, sorry, to come and see Evil Knievel. So Friedrich combined some of the ideas from Hellrider with Evil Knievel, and with the growing popularity of Marvel's supernatural characters. Go back and check out the Blade episode for the, for the kind of the, the brief history of, of horror comics in America and what happened when Marvel found a way to sanitise these supernatural characters to get them approved by the Comics Code Authority. The early 70s, they're starting to see a lot of success with that. Mm. He puts that all together to create this this character Ghost Rider, Friedrich's very close friends with Roy Thomas, who had become Stanley's right hand man. We talked about him in Age of Ultron. He's kind of the guy that almost takes over from Stan on every comic. He, he takes over on X Men. He takes over on the Avengers and does an awful lot of things. He would eventually kind of take over as one of the top editors at the company. Um, and in fact, I think he becomes editor in chief at, at one point. And Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas and and, and uh, Friedrich they lived together for a large number of years. They were they were housemates, roommates. They they go back a long time. And he takes a look at Gary's design and, and not design, but his idea for Ghost Rider. And he says this is just far too good to be a throwaway Daredevil villain. <laughs> I think this should be its own series. Let's go and pitch it to Stan Lee. Hmm. So Stan gives the go ahead after after hearing the the idea and. They give uh, the character and 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 Friedrich a, a seven issue tryout story mm. in a comic book series called Marvel Spotlight. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, Marvel Spotlight is an anthology series used to introduce new characters and gauge their popularity. Okay, it was a five-issue series, a five-issue little story arc. How did it sell? It didn't sell well. Let's mm. put the character to bed. Next, move on. Spider Woman got her start there, um, and it had a run of success with things like Werewolf by Night, which had been so successful it got its own Marvel series. Um, Son of Satan got its own series. Moon Knight. Um, got its own series off the back of Marvel Spotlight as well. Now, the seven issue run needed an artist, and we get Mike Plug entering the scene. Plug, P L O O G, Plug. <laughs> if you're listening to this, even if you've never read a comic book in your life, I bet that you have experienced the art of Mike Plug in one way or another. So just you take a minute here, Will, to have a think about this. You've never read okay. a Marvel comic book. I doubt you've ever actually seen Mike Plug's artwork in any comic book that you might have come across, but I think you've experienced his art one way or another. Mike Plug okay. did layout work for Hanna-Barbera on ah. Scooby-Doo and Wacky Races. He did storyboarding and design work for John Carpenter's The Thing, for Superman 2, Little Shop of Horrors, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, some post-production stuff on Ghostbusters. Um, and so his his impact, really, I mean, you, you if you get a certain generation or two generations there, they have definitely experienced some of his art in one way or another in terms of putting these movies together and laying things out. There's a bit of contention with the Ghost Rider creation over who came up with the idea of a flaming skull for the design. Mm. Um, but whatever the case, it kind of doesn't matter because it wasn't an original design anyway. Um, there's already a Marvel... Well, a, a t- Timely Comics, who were the predecessor to, to Marvel mm. before the 60s, already had a superhero who looks exactly like the Ghost Rider called the Blazing Skull. He's a 1941 World War II era superhero who has a skull that's on fire and a costume and he shoots fire out and he fights Nazis. And it is exactly the same in terms of the design. So um, the Ghost Rider run in Marvel Spotlight is so popular... In, in 1973, he gets his own comic book series, Ghost Rider, mm. and has a, a, a decent 10-year run. Um, he did, of course, join the single greatest superhero team of all time, our favourite superhero team, the Champions. Uh, the Champions, of course, are the very natural pairing of Angel and Iceman from the X-Men, <laughs> the Russian spy Black Widow, <laughs> the supernatural evil Knievel Ghost Rider... And Hercules, the Greek god. What well, they just make so much sense when you think about it. The Greek god so he, really ties the joins, room together. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> he joins this superhero team uh, riding around California. They're the only superheroes on the West Coast. Um, but by 1983, uh, the Ghost Ghost Rider comic book is is wrapped wrapped up and cancelled. No more Johnny Blaze. No more Ghost Rider. Hmm. Uh, and then in the 1990s, Marvel launches a brand new Ghost Rider. No more Evil Knievel, 
No more stunt rider. No more Harley Davidsons. This new ghost rider drives a bike more in line with the souped-up, high-tech 90s motorcycles, the Suzuki's, the Yamaha's, the Kawasaki's. They were all the rage at that time. Mm. Um, You know, I I live in a medium-sized town. We had two of those... (laughs) Of those, you know, Japanese motorbike shops, um, where it was, it was it, in the nineties, man. That was a real, that was a really, really deeply popular kind of thing. In, yeah. in, in many, messed the same way, I guess that kind of the Harley Davidson style bikes probably were the Easy Rider style bikes were, I guess, in the seventies. Mm. Um, this this nineties Ghost Rider. Man, he's a huge hit. He he comes yeah. around during the nineties comic book boom. He sells millions of, of cop- copies. He 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 hits at the perfect time when Marvel are realizing there's this collector boom that gestated with the death of Superman comic book series, where idiots thought that they could buy lots of copies of a comic book and it would be worth something in the future. Mm. Which makes sense if it was Action Comics number one or whatever, because they didn't print many of them. <laughs> but this is when DC are printing millions. Honestly, people were buying pallets, Will, pallets of the issue of Death of Superman. Ooh. It came in a, it came in a, a, um, a sealed bag hmm. that they wouldn't open. And they generally thought they were being, they were speculating on a market and they were going to be worth something. <laughs> Idiots. Um, but, it, but it created this big boom. And Image Comics kind of rided this crest. And Ghost Rider as well. Ghost Rider, like, they had these foil front covers to the comic with a hologram on the foil. You, so it was just Ghost Rider's skull. And as you tilt and move the cover, the hologram changes and you can see the flames on his skull move and dance. Mm. And things like that, plus the popularity of a lot of the elements it's touching on, like Ghost Rider in the 90s was absolutely massive. It spawned, it, it breathed new light into pretty much all of Marvel's forgotten supernatural characters that had dropped off in the 80s. Um, and we talked about that in the Blade episode as well. You know, Blade kind of, again, vanishes towards the end of the 70s and the start of the 80s. And eventually, 90s Ghost Rider spawns an entire line of supernatural horror-themed superhero books that all tie in together under the Midnight Suns banner. And and Ghost Rider became so popular that Marvel thrust him into their animated world. Oh, yeah. Fox's super popular Spider-Man, <clears throat> Spider-Man cartoon series created a a multi-part story that would see Spider-Man team up with Ghost Rider to fight Dormammu, who you might remember from the Doctor Strange movie. Yes, um, Dormammu. That was all geared Dorma- up Dormammu. to go. Yeah. yeah, that was all geared up to go, but Fox pulled the plug on that because uh, rival cable network UPN began to develop a Ghost Rider cartoon series. So Fox did not want to give life to something that would end up on a competitor's, you know, channel. So they axed that. But instead, Ghost Rider appeared um, in the Fantastic Four cartoon, hmm. where he beats Galactus, 
um, in a moment that has gone viral several times in the last couple of years, uh, not couple of years, last ten years, that clip of Ghost Rider defeating Galactus, um, I guess as that generation that saw it then became older now, started to you know share and share and share it. And then UPN introduced Ghost Rider in their Incredible Hulk cartoon series. And there's a story arc there which acted as a backdoor pilot so that, you know, UPN could commission um, Ghost Rider's own, own series on the back of it. That didn't come to light, um, unfortunately. Never got picked up. Um, and similarly, mid-90s Ghost Rider video game was virtually completed. Oh, But then hello. the video game company making it uh, went out of business or stopped making video games or... Or something like that. He made a handful of cameos in Marvel video games in the mm. 90s. But he never... You know, some of those games where you can bring on a character to assist you in a side-scroller. I was about um, to say, I, I haven't seen him in a Lego game yet. I'm going to no, have a quick search now, see if is, I can find him. But, I mean, this was the 90s. I can I can tell you, Will. You don't have to look for it. I've done my research. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't right. have to look for it yourself. Um, but he's he's in the... He's, if you want to go beyond this movie, which we're not supposed to do... He does turn up in the um, Ultimate Alliance video games as mm. playable characters. And the, the first thing that happened, though, is he gets a video game as a direct sequel to this movie. Oh. And it features a cutscene story by Garth Ennis. Oh. And it features Blade as a playable character for the first time. Oof. Um That's nice. I'm told the gameplay isn't amazing, but but there we go. So, that is really why we have a 2007 Ghost Rider movie. It's mainly because of the 90s version of Ghost Rider, who is not Johnny Blaze. But that character wouldn't have come about without Johnny Blaze, who wouldn't have come about (laughs) without Hell Rider, who wouldn't have come about... We've got more to do. Does when I say <laughs> that Ghost Rider is a jigsaw character made of all these different pieces, a, a flaming skull from a different character, um, and uh, and and elements of Hell Rider, it. I, I, we're not going to do it right now. But as we get into it, his name is not even his name. Oh, I was so. going to say when you said he's a jigsaw character, I thought you meant he's like Jigsaw from Saw, because he has a scary white face and is constantly on a bike. <laughs> but no but no the Halloween Ooh. behind the page um, I'm, I think I'm sick of that now I think I'm not going to do any more of the spooky voice um, so there's, a, there's there's some interesting um, backstory on, on Man Thing and how He's conceived in the 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 nineteen seventies and 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 comes forward. Um, it, 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 it there's there's kind of a I mean Stan Lee is kind of at the heart of this possibly right. Mm. So we've talked in the past about about, about Stan Lee when he's he's editor of Marvel Comics. His right hand man is is Roy Thomas, who would eventually replace Stan on writing pretty much everything that Stan was writing. And would eventually replace him as kind of the editor in chief as well. Yeah. Um, and S- Stanley had had come up with the name Man Thing, which he he'd previously used on another um, Marvel monster back in the in the in the sixties. Just had like a one off appearance. Um, and Stan uh, very much had the idea, 
and it's the, the, the core concept for Man-Thing and for Swamp-Thing is the idea of a man dying and losing sentience and becoming a monster. Okay. So Roy Thomas uh, said in an interview about this, Stanley called me into his office. It would have been late 1970 or early 71. He had a couple of sentences or, or so for the concept of this new character. I think it was mainly the notion of a guy working on some experimental drug for the government, his being accosted by spies, getting fused with the shop, the, the swamp, Swamp, he said, getting fused with the swamp, suddenly becomes this creature. Mm. Um, so Stanley, the driving force there, Roy Thomas comes up with the, the 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 actual plot, the origin plot, and then in comes Jerry Conway. We've looked at Jerry Conway in the past; he's an influential writer on things like Spider Man, mm. um, and involved with the Punisher as well. Um, to, uh, Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway kind of came up with then this origin story with uh, Gray Mara, the artist. Um, and then after they kind of did the initial story, a second story, the second appearance of Man-Thing, was written by Len Wein and drawn by Neil Adams. Okay. That was written and, and drawn and prepared to go as the sequel, the second adventure of Man-Thing, but the comic it was originally published in, Savage Tales, got cancelled. Oh. So it took like a year or two for it to get to print. Right. It, took, it would next be, you know, be printed in 1972. Len Wein, who writes the second story of Man-Thing, is the creator of Swamp-Thing. So Man-Thing is introduced May 1971. Okay. They... Then commissioned Len Wein to write the second, the sequel, about the Man-Thing. Right. And then a month after, <laughs> in a month after, yeah, July 1971, Swamp Thing debuts, written uh. by Len Wein. Oh, well. So, yeah. Um, that feels like a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Roy Thomas again spoke of... Oh, FYI, Jerry Conway and Len Wein yes. are roommates at the time. Ah, <laughs> living, okay. Like living in the same flat and working for rival companies, sort of. Oh, God. So, Roy Thomas interviewed about this particularly bizarre sequence of events, and he said, Jerry and I thought that unconsciously or not, the origin in Swamp Thing number one was too similar to the origin of Man Thing a year and a half earlier. Mm. There was vague talk a year and a half earlier. What's he talking about there? I'm not sure what he's talking about there. There was vague talk at the time around Marvel of legal action, but it was never really pursued. I don't know if any letters ever changed hands between Marvel and DC, legal letters he means. We weren't happy with the situation over the Swamp Thing number one origin. We figured it an accident. Okay. Let, to just to just take you, what we've talked about is the origin of man of, of man thing. Yeah. Is a scientist working on a serum for the government, attacked by spies, and the serum fuses him with the swamp when he gets into a life or death disaster. Yeah. That's the exact origin of swamp thing. Yeah. 
and man thing. And man thing. I'm, there's I'm literally no it's difference. The exact, it, it, there's no difference. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's not just a case of their swamp monsters with thing. Mm. It's the whole origin of a scientist preparing a serum, spies, takes the serum, fused with the thing. It's exactly the same. And Len Wein knew this <laughs> and lived lived with the guy that came with the one that was commissioned to write the second story and he was playing both sides yeah I don't know what he was doing um, Jerry was rooming with Len at the time Roy Thomas says uh, and we tried to talk to him he tried to talk him into changing the Swamp Thing origin mm. but Len didn't see the similarities um it goes a bit further than this though because you know no legal action was taken which is really really bizarre really strange hmm but perhaps an explanation for this is that both swamp monsters really closely resemble another comic book swamp monster that made his first appearance in 1942. Hillman Periodicals, mm. the 1940s, had a, a, a series called Air Fighter Comics. And in issue three, <laughs> we were introduced to The Heap. <laughs> so... Uh, Baron Eric von Emmelmann, a World War One German flying ace, yeah. who was shot down in 1918 over a Polish swamp, Ooh. and he dies slowly. And through the decades, his body decayed, but his mind, his spirit, his consciousness, his will to live on was so strong. He <laughs> intermingled with the vegetation in the swamp around him, becoming one with the swamp marshland until. It, you know, it eventually arose from the muck during the early years of World War Two as this swamp monster known as the Heap. Swamp Mensch. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> very similar concepts. Yeah. Very similar looks. The Heap even has that weird tendril nose, just like Manthing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, almost Cthulhu esque. Uh, it, it, it well, yeah. Although I'd have to, we'd have to then have an explanation of when the first depiction of Cthulhu was drawn to look like the one we know today. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? I don't. I think Man Thing certainly has Cthulhu inspiration and looks very much like that. Especially the seventies, there was a big rise in some of horror literature again. Yeah, I don't think the Heap does, and I don't really think Swamp Thing does. Swamp Thing always remember had that nose. He always had the nose, like the the the, the, the flat wide, the flat thing, yeah. wide nostrils. I remember that very well. So in the nineteen eighties, um, when Alan Moore got his hands on Swamp Thing and and, and, and drastically changed the whole character, the whole backstory, mm. he 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 actually made Swamp Thing a bit more like Man Thing. Okay, um, in that. Swamp Thing has always been um, a scientist who's been who, who this terrible accident happens to him, and he dies, and he kind of comes back as is this veg this this kind of swamp muck creature, mm. but he he is very much who he was before, yeah. and he's like I am cursed to live this horrible life. My wife will no longer love me, and blow that kind of stuff. Mm. Alan Moore changed that very much, and he was no longer, you know, he abandoned all his humanity. Wow! Um, and the Swamp Thing, you know, was a brand new kind of life form. Um, and Man Thing is very much like has no humanity to him. No, he's a, he's a monster. Rough, roughly, mm. I'm talking about in the in, in the comics. Oh, yeah, sorry. He, he's he's very he's not 
he's not a, a character that has the mind of a man in the mm. body of a monster. That was not what Stanley envisioned for this whatsoever. Um, the loss of sentience, the loss of 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 agency, almost. Yeah. Um, but during Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run. Swamp Thing discovers that he is actually one in a long line of of living vegetation creatures all over the world and down throughout history, brought about by magic or, or accident when men are kind of fused with, you know, uh, plant life. And in this sequence, he sees images of all the other kind of swamp well, they call them they're, they're kind of plant gods or swamp like creatures across the world and down the ages. And one of the images drawn in that panel is Man Thing's distinctive face, uh-huh. which was a nice little nod yeah, and and, yeah. and, a, and a way of kind of crossing things over. So, um, once Swamp Thing is kind of Man Thing is reintroduced, we had this cancellation. He kind of comes back. He gets a a, a um, not a full comic. He gets. Um, he gets like half a comic, half a comic, in an, a, a horror-themed anthology series called Adventure into Fear. Mm. It would have ten pages of Man Thing, and then one or two backup stories or other horror-themed stories in the back. Uh-huh. It might be another ten-page story, or it was probably a five-page and another five-page story. Um, and but 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 Man Thing kind of got always got the front cover. Uh, and it was journey. It was adventure into fear with the man thing. Um, Steve Gerber, who you'll remember from our Howard the Duck episode, mm. um, who was the incredibly visionary writer behind Howard the Duck. Yeah, Steve Gerber would become Man Thing's signature writer very, very quickly. Um, and once he took over, the quality of writing uh, about on on Man Thing went up. The popularity increased. So they. Ditched the the idea of having two other, you know, short five page stories in the back, and they extended Man Thing because Steve Gerber's writing was so good and it was getting so popular. Great, now Man Thing, the whole comic is Man Thing, um, from beginning to end. Okay. Um, instead of mate having these shorter stories knocking mm-hmm. around, um, and Steve Gerber introduced all his. We talked in the How the Duck episode. He, he he did loads of satire, yeah. um, and he had lots of social commentary. Man Thing is the the quintessential Bronze Age character to me. What Bronze Age? Describe Bronze Age. If you remember from we kind of touched on it in our Superman um, episode, we have the Golden Age, yeah. um, which generally goes up to the to the to the Second World War, mm. and then we have the Silver Age, which is where Marvel starts in the nineteen fifties and sixties on mm. through. Um, and and then we have the Bronze Age, which is kind of end of the sixties, start of the seventies, and it's typified by two things really: um, the emergence of stories that have more sophistication and, and deal with some level of social commentary. Yeah. Um. So we have Harry Osborn in Spider Man becoming a drug addict. Yes. Yeah. We have um, the Green Arrow sidekick, Speedy, becoming a drug addict. Mm. We have Green Lantern and Green Arrow going on this like um, Easy Rider tour around America to discover the true heart of America and finding that their powers and their crime fighting does nothing to touch poverty, racism, 
injustice in in, in certain ways. Um, those kind of social issues. Mm. You can generally point to the death of Gwen Stacy as being like the end of the Silver Age, where things are a bit more um, idyllic. You know, the the kind of the the, the wave of the the JFK, the Kennedy royal yes. family, and all of that is kind yeah. of really really worn off. Gwen Stacy's death is a hallmark of it. But the Bronze Age is also typified by the return of horror to comics. Oh, yes. If you go back and listen to one of our earliest episodes, Blade, we have a, a whole sequence. You know, our archives are there for a reason, guys. We have we have a, a real explanation and dive into horror comics, mm. which were kind of almost outlawed and banned um, in in the fifties and sixties. Did I mention and my big book big book of horror comics? Yeah, you did. Yeah, those were readily available from the works and stuff for a long, long time. Yeah, I, I need to um, read through that again. Some of it was absolutely brilliant. Some of it's just frightening as hell. Yeah, by the time we get to the late sixties, early seventies, the, the start of the Bronze Age, those kind of um, conditions and rules about horror comics, thanks to the popularity of of um, horror characters in the movies like mm. hammer hammer horror was quite a big you know proponent of this it, it it quelled and and marvel and dc were able to use horror comics and horror themed characters again obviously you can't show an actual decapitation mm. someone being ripped apart or do anything that's too scary yeah but marvel can um, have a dracula comic yeah they can they can create blade we suddenly then if you think about what we get in the 70s we get um, Dracula, we get Blade, we get Ghost Rider, who's a demon. Mm. We get the son of Satan getting his own comic, <laughs> um, and we get things like Man Thing. A Man Thing, for me, encapsulates both those elements of the Bronze Age because when Steve Gerber comes along, not only is it a horror comic, a monster horror comic, but suddenly Steve Gerber puts all this social commentary about generally i mean environmentalism a little bit but also racism mm. and uh, inequality and injustice and things so man thing really typifies both i mean it typifies the the bronze age really yeah his solo comic you know ran from uh, not very long 22 issues um so so adventure to fear goes so well that they they give Steve Gerber and Man Thing his own series. I, I skipped over that for some reason, and and that was great. And that was great. And that introduces an element of magic and mystic stuff to to the um, to the origin of Man Thing. Um, but that didn't last very long. It, it gets cancelled in nineteen seventy five. Um, but before it did, and like this is the popularity of of Man Thing. Briefly, you know, kind of like How the Duck. How the Duck was so hugely popular. For a brief shining period of time, always we talked about, and of course, how the duck debuted in oh, in Man Thing. In Man, how the, how, Man what, Thing is the is the you know Man Thing features the first appearance and stories of how the duck. Seriously, yeah, yeah, we talked about that and how the duck episode. Steve Gerber, the oh, writer of Man God, Thing, sorry, how sorry, the duck, man. and then spun off um, during the mid seventies. Yeah. Marvel did this thing where they would produce uh, four times a year. They produce a quarterly, larger version of a popular series. Mm. They would call it the giant size. So you get a giant size X Men, <laughs> right? A giant size Spider Man. That just sounds like a food. They did. Can I have the a Spider Man, please? Do you want a giant size it for an extra fifty p? They did the same with the character we're talking about today, Will. A giant-sized man thing. 
Boom! <laughs> this giant sized man thing sounds rude. You're quite correct, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it has become a long running joke in the comic book community yeah. for many, many years. Giant that sized man thing. Giant sized man thing was a, a, a comic that Marvel. Uh, it was kind of more of a magazine, really. Yeah. Um, that that featured the reprints of black and white reprints of sixties and fifties horror kind of uh, monster comics with How the Duck in there as well. Mm. Um, after a while, Man Thing is cancelled. You know, well, that, well, sorry, after he's cancelled uh, in, in seventy five. I mean, he becomes more of like this great background character in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And he does get... Uh, they, they try again with another series, and it doesn't last very long, like 12 issues that time. Mm. And, and he gets some limited series along the way. But he becomes, if you remember from our Nick Fury episode... And listen, guys, there's a reason the weird, wild, and wacky episodes are all connected. Yeah. Um, which they are. How the Duck, Man-Thing, uh, Nick Fury. Nick, Nick Fury, as I said, he, they had some stabs and some great stabs at him being a, 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 a main character, a protagonist in a story, in a, in, a, in, a, in a comic book series. But then, it doesn't progress, and for the, the majority of Nick Fury's existence, he's this awesome background character that adds incredible shading to the Marvel Universe, mm. that can be brought in whenever the Avengers you know, need to be told, the government isn't happy with you, or when... The mutant problem gets so big, the government get involved. Well, here comes Nick Fury and the helicarrier, or when you want to do a big spy story, Man Thing becomes kind of a bit similar. Really, he he he's um he's a big part of the Marvel world, mm. used very sparingly. Yeah, but not a character that that has his own comic really for any significant period of time. He appears in other stories, and he's a, he's a guest appears and stuff. Uh, not a protagonist or an antagonist, but he's used an awful lot. Whenever there's like a, a story with a mystical bent or a monster or whatever, um, man thing, you know, crops up an awful lot around characters like Doctor Strange and and the other monsters as well, um, including the Legion of Monsters, which we will get to as we go through. Um, but but yeah, he he. He is never one to be spun off into a cartoon series or or get really an action figure line or or anything like that. Really none of the monster themed characters did. Um and this is really the, the this movie is his first first time that he's venturing out of the swamp. <laughs> Let's take a trip behind the page now, uh, Will, as we, we, we get to the creation of Werewolf by Night, otherwise known as Jack Russell, your yeah. favourite name in the history of comics. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a little tricky to pinpoint. As far as we, it, research will allow us to see, um, the very first appearance of a werewolf in comic books is... Um, Back in 1936, more fun comics published by the company that would end up becoming DC, um, but weren't quite at the time. Um, and uh, more fun comics featured uh, a, a character who's still in DC Comics now. He's like the he's the oldest action adventure character that's still being published by or, or featured by DC, and he's called Doctor Occult. Mm. Um, if you don't know Doctor Occult, he's a he was created by um, uh, Siegel and Shuster, the, the guys that created Superman. Yeah, Superman guys. He's um, he's kind of like he's sometimes known as the Ghost Detective. He's like a private investigator that that specializes in supernatural stuff. Mm. When we looked at the creation of 
Doctor Strange, we looked at a, a bunch of like pulp and radio characters mm. that were all about this. They were all kind of like spiritualism was very big, and being able to like read minds and um, transport your spirit self somewhere else. They were quite big in 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 kind of pop culture movies and I said radios and things like that during the thirties um, and into the forties. And Doctor Occult is kind of one of those dudes. Mm. Um, he's uh, you know he he can do all sorts of astral projection and telepathy and hypnosis and and the kind of all weird stuff lumped into to one um and in in one of his issues he does encounter a a werewolf and that's probably the very first time in like proper american western action adventure comics that we get a werewolf bleeding across of course the yeah. universal the universal uh, movie the the wolfman and stuff is, is is a big influence on all of these kind of things um now werewolf by night Mm. First appears as a, as a title in 1953, like ten years before the Marvel Universe starts. Marvel's Ooh. predecessor, Atlas Comics. I was thought it was going to be Timely Comics. If you remember our history, yeah, Timely yeah. is kind of the originator, and then originator. Timely morphs into Atlas Comics mm. um, around the end of the 40s into the 50s, and then Atlas Comics. Atlas Comics is the company that publishes. Um, Marvel Tales, which is where eventually the comic book company takes the name Marvel from and becomes Marvel Comics. So back in 1953, in an issue of Marvel Tales, there is um, a a, a five-page short story called Werewolf by Night. Mm. Marvel Tales featured a series, like five or six little short stories, one with an alien in, one with a, you know, a supernatural thing in, one with a gangster in, you know, every, it just had to be out of the ordinary, like boys' own adventure stories that you go, oh, I got five good, exciting stories there. The front cover in 1953 features a werewolf, it's kind of a... It's a. Uh, it's the the front cover is split into three panels, so you see mm. three sections of. You see a, a story progress across the page in three panels. Uh, it's a man hurrying home late at night on a street, and he's stopped by his pushy neighbour who won't let him leave. And she's like, "Let me tell you, you're new to the area. Let me tell you all about the neighbourhood." And he's like, "I got to get out of here. You got to let me go. It's getting late." And the next issue is like, "No nonsense. I I'm going to tell you." <laughs> and in the second panel on the front page he's actually looking really sick and he's saying no you don't understand you've got to let me go and in the final panel on the front cover he's transformed into a werewolf and he's savaging her saying oh, i told you not no. to keep me this however does not feature at any stage inside the comic <laughs> something that was quite common at the time it has no <laughs> bearing on the story werewolf by night um which is set in vienna in 1890 <laughs> <laughs> Werewolf by Night, Will, is originally about Johan, a man who lives in, <laughs> in 1890 in Vienna. Um, and he's courting a young lady, doesn't have enough money. And so he turns to thievery, highway robbery. And he waits for people in the Vienna streets late at night. And he jumps out at them using a werewolf costume he got from a costume party. <laughs> and he scares them and he mugs them. Um, mm. But one night he's doing this, he chases down a victim into an alley. And as he mugs them, a real werewolf turns up. Oh, and is it literally the man who cried werewolf? 
Not quite. Okay. He kills and eats. The werewolf kills and eats the guy's victim, and he gets his money, runs off, and he's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, that was a real werewolf. Oh, my God. I'm never going to rob anyone ever again. Amazing. And then there's a knock at his door, and he opens his door, and it's the werewolf. And the werewolf is wearing trousers. And he walks in, and he goes, and he goes hi, I'm a werewolf. I'm a real one, not like you. I got and human the guy's, problems. The guy's absolutely terrified, and the werewolf is like, you're going to... I'm old now and yeah. I'm not so good at chasing them down. You're really good. You're going to chase them down. You get the money and I'll kill and eat them. And this guy's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want any part of it. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, I'll just murder you and everyone you love then. And he's like, oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. And he it's wakes like, up the next. I'm oh, just yeah. thinking, like, oh, my God. It's even worse than a werewolf. A werewolf of pockets. <laughs> you have five minutes to get to that one and I'm not sure yeah it was but worth I didn't it. want to interrupt your flow and I was like no well, you did anyway this. and it was werewolf of pockets so werewolf you know pockets. <laughs> so anyway <laughs> the werewolf the next the next day also says oh just to let you know I live here now I live in your house I'm sleeping in your house now you live with me the werewolf man mm. um, he's terrified and racked with guilt he, he's forced to go along with this the Vienna werewolf um he, he he refuses to let his girlfriend ever come around to see the house because he's like, I live with a werewolf. Eventually, she like surprises him and comes round um, for a visit, and he's terrified of her meeting the the, the werewolf man. Mm. But then, when she finally does, when she, she find- says, "Yeah, do you want to make another joke?" This means nothing to me. it's a vienna reference jesus now here's the problem will (laughs) at the start of the show we had an announcement and the announcement was you've quit comedy (laughs) and yet here we all are still suffering if anything (laughs) you've ramped it up several notches and i'm i'm now concerned about the podcast i think you used to get all these bad jokes out on stage i think now they're going to be funneled in our direction Just we might to need have to have fun. a referendum on this. Just trying to have fun. So anyway, as I get to the conclusion of the thing I'm talking about, you know, she, <laughs> the, the girlfriend comes in and finally meets the werewolf that he's so concerned about keeping away from and says, oh, father, I didn't know you knew my Johan. And then she turns into a werewolf as well and they eat him. Wow. And that's the end of Werewolf by Night. It was not. It's not a. They don't. They're not doing ro- long running characters. It's just there. You go. Um, but this was a tame example of like a horror story. It wasn't. It was kind of a supernaturally story. Mm. Um, but we've talked in our previous episodes about how you know there weren't really a huge amount of superhero stories being told in the in the nineteen fifties. The popularity kind of outside of Superman and Batman kind of died off after the Second World War. Mm. And that's where in this vacuum we saw cowboy comics and romance comics and horror comics really flourish in the uh, in the nineteen fifties. EC comics that had like Tales from the Crypt and stuff. Um but they they were they pushed things. They really pushed the barrier of what horror was doing in comics and it led to a moral panic a ah, moral panic in america yeah. that these these horrifying comics not not that one we just talked about but some of them were really horrifying like famous front covers depicting like people buried alive screaming for their life and dying and a woman's decapitated head being carried around by an axe murderer and they're on newsstands 
all of America right next to like Mickey Mouse and Superman comics and there's no law <laughs> anyone could just buy them no there's no age restriction so there's a big moral panic yeah. and and Frederick uh, Verzen writes this book called Seduction of the Innocents about how all comic books are are dangerous sedacious kind of dangerous influence on on the young seducing the innocent and corrupting them and creating um childhood delinquents and mm. teenage delinquents and stuff um and that was a big deal like he he really whipped up um that he helped with this moral panic around especially religious groups we we still have it now hocus pocus 2 came out and i saw someone on the news they'd found some some i don't know very enthusiastic religious person who was talking about how it's satan worship yeah you always get that (laughs) one personal group of people god yeah yeah it's really Um, changed and they were, you know, very fervent at the time in the fifties. Uh, we the, the the war's over and we've got nothing to do. Let's burn comic books. So depictions of supernatural characters and supernatural stories were especially targeted in the fifties as being satanic. Um, it was a big, big deal. We've talked about that there, there were book burnings in all over America and stuff, even in this country as well. Um, and the Oklahoma City, Houston. Um, banned the sale of crime and horror comics. So did some other states as well. In 1954, a Senate subcommittee was was convened on juvenile delinquencies investigating comic books. And as a result of that, the comic book industry created something called the Comic Code Authority, mm. a, a self-imposed regulatory body to clean up the image of comic books um, so that the government wouldn't step in and do something, basically. And this authority, which this is... If you want to be a reputable business, you only buy your comics from... From the comic code, from the people that have a comic code authority stamp on them, yeah, right. And there's a media campaign that says, okay, from this point on, there are good comics and that have the stamp from the comic code authority, and there are evil comics that will turn little Timmy into a juvenile delinquent and a criminal and a mobster. So newsstands, drugstores, any shop, they're not touching anything that doesn't have the comic code authority stamp on it. And this body. Bans werewolves, vampires, ghouls, zombies. Horror comics are dead and buried as of 1954. Um, now, oddly enough, during this time, while it's dead and buried, there is a a comic book published called Werewolf. Despite the fact they're banned, it gets the comic <laughs> book code stamp of approval. It's published by Dell Comics um, in 1966. Um, and this is uh, this is yeah this is a nice this is a nice one it's an odd one so it's called Werewolf mm. and they wanted to um, they Dell created a line of comics that were based on the Universal monster characters so there was a Dracula comic there was a Frankenstein's monster comic and then there's a Werewolf comic they originally tried to call it Wolfman but that was a, a, a copyrighted name. But the star of the 1966 comic Werewolf is not a werewolf. Okay. He's just a deranged secret agent. <laughs> let me <laughs> Let me introduce you to uh, Air Force pilot Major Wiley Wolf. 
But how does this story about werewolves get even more ridiculous? Major Wily Wolf crashes his aircraft at the Arctic Circle, bumps his head, gets amnesia, goes feral, and lives with a group of wolves for a while. His favourite wolf he names Thor and becomes his constant companion. Wily Wolf and Thor spend six months in the Canadian wilderness. He's living as a pack animal, killing and gobbling up, you know, remains of animals and carcasses and presumably, and I'm not definitely saying this, but probably having a shag with one of them. Anyway, (laughs) he gets his memory back and goes, oh no, I'm not an animal, I'm a man. And he goes, (laughs) walks to America and says, I'd like to be an Air Force Major again, please, despite my six months of insanity. Um, (laughs) And he's uh, been changed by his lupine friends, and now Mm. he realises that too many people are like the insane wolves he met who occasionally take over the pack and cause the pack to go insane and cause untold damage to the world around them. So he wants to help mankind by finding the mad wolves in human form and stopping them. That is a comic called Werewolf. (laughs) But he has no wolf powers. He is not a wolf person. He is a mad secret agent bloke. Um, and that's it. So that's how a comic that had the title Werewolf managed to get published during the Supernatural ban because it didn't have anything supernatural in it. They just using it to draw the ask- name in. They using yeah. the name to draw people in. Yeah, hundred percent. It took seventeen years for these kind of Supernatural Werewolf ban rules to be overturned and relaxed. The um, the sixties saw a huge rise of the supernatural characters in the in the public eye. Dracula, Frankenstein, the werewolf himself were big business at the box office thanks to Hammer Horror movies, which were a, a smash hit. But I think more than that, the gentle mainstream TV shows like The Addams Family and Bewitched and The Monsters were all proving that supernatural characters and supernatural mm. theme stories could be portrayed as entertainment for families and not gruesome satanic you know horror stuff yeah that makes sense particularly i think for our purposes of this episode the character of eddie munster in the cbs family sitcom the monsters where Mm. little eddie munster is a rambunctious all-american boy next door who happens to be a werewolf and for some reason sleep in a coffin i never understood that bit um And he he uh, that 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 TV series was very very popular until Batman came along. Uh, mm. That's a story for another day. Yeah. Um, the nineteen sixty six got a big spin off movie called Monsters Go Home. Again, werewolf and vampires and all that being played family friendly comedy played for laughs. So nineteen seventy one. There is an updating of the Comic Code Authority rules that lifts the ban on werewolves and supernatural stuff and marvel comics leaps into action to capitalize on this because stan lee's just not gonna let someone like this go by his track record we go back and we see like there's a popular movie about you know a scientist who shrinks and and fights ants <laughs> he creates ant-man you know it, it's all this kind of stuff he created yeah. the he created the black knight character when the prince valiant movies were a big deal like it's 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 comics 101 and stan stan knows exactly how to do that so when hammer horror is really big and things like that and they haven't been able to publish any of these characters for a while they mm, leap mm. at these kind of these this popular and and, and rich vein of, of action comics that they've not been able to touch for 17 years so they test the waters 
1971 with characters like Morbius, the living vampire, not undead, not, not supernatural. Und- yeah, like a fake vampire. He's a half vampire. He's yeah. a living vampire. Quasi. Don't say yeah. that name. Uh, <laughs> and Man Thing, who is sort of sort of supernatural, but not not undead or whatever. And then mm. in 1972 when they are okay the comic code authority definitely isn't going to prosecute us or whatever or take our license away they go full tilt in 72 um mm. they they launch tomb of dracula and say okay dracula is back in the marvel universe here he is um blade becomes a popular character ghost rider um all, they all come out in 1972 and in 1972 they get their very own werewolf character that was big on the list um stanley wanted to reuse the werewolf by night title from the 50s he thought that was a cool title he may have come up with it in the first place there's not a lot of documentation on those um 50s comics because we don't get a list of who wrote what and who drew what and stuff but stanley was heavily involved in all the marvel comics of the 50s so you know i can imagine him perhaps coming up with that so he wanted to reuse the title werewolf by night mm. stan's right hand man roy thomas was kind of tasked with coming up with a uh, an origin and plotting out this werewolf character story and he did that with his lovely wife jean thomas who is credited as one of the co-creators of this character and co-plotted it um but the writers were jerry conway very famous for his spider-man run he created the Mm. punisher and things like that we've talked about and mike plug who was the original artist on um ghost rider and so had a big hand in 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 ghost rider as well they're the creators of the first stories um as was common at the time the uh the jack russell werewolf character did not debut in his own comic book series he first appeared in an anthology series called Marvel Spotlight. We talked about Marvel Spotlight. Um, it's where we got Ghost Rider and later Moon Knight. Marvel would try a character out, give him two or three issues in Marvel Spotlight. If it's received favorably, okay, we'll give you your own series where you're the star. If not, no harm, no foul. Um, so Werewolf by Night started in that one. Jack Russell got t- two or three issues, I think, hmm. in, uh, in Marvel Spotlight. Now know. let's talk about the name. Yeah. You've laughed many, many times at the notion of a character called Jack Russell. It's hilarious, Rob. It's inherently hilarious. Jerry Conway. If you're not aware, Jack, a Jack Russell is also a breed of dog. An and and a, a, adorable breed an of adorable dog. Breed of dog. <laughs> yeah. Jerry Conway has been asked about this and says he cannot remember how he came up with the name but he says it is unlikely that he was making a joke or a canine reference since he did not own a dog never lived with one and didn't really know anything about dogs <laughs> so he claims it's just a happy accident that the dog man is actually called jack russell no i don't know is he no. living on the square on that one i'm not sure you could, i mean i mean i you know me i got some really crazy blind spots with cultural things but wow that's <laughs> demented but I, then again i'm i mean i don't know i'm not a dog person right and people will talk about oh it's a, a alsatian stingle hound and i don't know what you're talking about i can't picture it i don't mm. know i've no idea but even i've heard of a jack russell oh they're they're iconic dogs so after his test run in marvel's spotlight the character was popular enough to graduate to his own series in in September of 1972 called Werewolf by Night. They still felt that was a very strong Mm. title. They liked it, and it was kind of like 
I'm a I'm a regular kid by day, but I'm a werewolf by night. That's mm. kind of the because he's an 18 year old is our is our eponymous uh, werewolf character. Um, Conway described Jerry Conway described writing on this series as a lot of fun because he really enjoyed the horror genre. He said it made a refreshing change from the the superhero stories that were um, have become the staple of of mainstream comics for many years. Um, werewolf by night lasted until 1977. It's a good run in the 70s for not a major character. 43, 40 four issues um and he also had some special the spin-offs i think there was a giant size werewolf comic at one point or a giant size creatures um jack russell became kind of dormant for most of the 1980s um not uh, to be fair a, a fair few of those of those 70s supernatural characters we saw it with ghost rider as well mm. kind of drop off the face of the earth in, in the 80s um it's not until the resurgence of you know, your Stephen King horror and your Clive Barker horror that you get these, you know, and, and horror becomes kind of cool again, late 80s, early 90s, you know, Hellraiser and all that kind of stuff. When we see a resurgence of horror characters, supernatural characters, um, and in the 90s, Morbius, when Morbius was a red-hot character for Marvel in the early 90s, uh, Jack Russell, Werewolf by Night, became a regular kind of co-star, uh, mm. supporting character in that character. And he, be- he became kind of a supporting character throughout the Marvel Universe from the 90s onwards. Um, he's appeared sporadically, um, occasionally getting you know a, a short-lived revival or a-, or a one-off comic here and there, but really nothing major. I think probably nothing major until this special TV show. Thanks for joining us as we revisit some of our favourite moments from Marvel vs. Marvel. Don't forget our full-length episodes are jam-packed with hours of Marvel trivia, behind the page, behind the scenes and comic book Marvel history. (laughs) 